0: So, um, yeah, I was just coming out to make sure you guys were all still here. (laughs) You know, Jim's preaching today, and all of a sudden there was a rush for the door, so it was kind of funny. Um, So, good morning, and welcome to Village Bible Church. Uh, This really is exciting. It's terrifying and exciting at the same time. It's like a thrill ride. Uh, So, really appreciate the opportunity to um, come and preach again Uh, to fill in temporarily while our pastors are away. Um, The last time I preached was, uh, which was my first time preaching, I admitted that it took me about 61 years to work up the courage uh, to do so. Now, less than two years ago, uh, we can see that God is way ahead of his schedule uh, on this, since in my book, I didn't expect to preach again for another 61 years, (laughs) making me about 122 years old. Uh, but unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, I was asked again, and so it's great. Uh, Josh and I were talking a few minutes ago, and thank you for, uh, f- thank you, worship team, for the great songs that we sang today, especially for uh, the solo uh, about America. I found it very, very fitting, and really uh, appreciate it. Very humbled and honored that Pastor Ron had the confidence and the faith in God, not in me, uh, to have asked me a second time to come and preach to you today. So let's take a look at the next slide, please. Today uh, we'll be discussing Luke. Oh, I can't see that. Today we'll be discussing Luke seventeen 20. <laughs> Don't ask me, do I want to see the slides back there? Oh yeah, I do. I definitely do. Uh, regarding the kingdom of God and the second coming of Jesus Christ, both of which are really small topics. Um, and so I'm hoping we can just push through this in the next couple of days. Uh, Before I get started, I I need to ask an important question, and there's a little audience participation. Have you ever been with someone else when you or they totally missed the point of something? I mean, like, not just a little bit, completely. Okay, so we're all in good company. Uh, This is all good. Uh, I'm going to start with a little humorous anecdote right now uh, to help make a, a larger point. Uh, but first I want to mention we have two, Debbie and I have two wonderful daughters. They're both uh, grown and married, have awesome husbands. Uh, first one, the oldest, is Amy. She's here today with her family. Uh, and Nikki, uh, who couldn't be here today but wanted to be here, um, they are married to wonderful men. Uh, but this story is about only one of them. I had to choose, and so I came down with the one I thought was most appropriate for today. So some of you know uh, our daughter Amy. Uh, she is, I had to set this up. She is, you know, your typical straight-A student, uh, master's degree in education, super mom to the world's two cutest grandchildren. Uh, okay, we are a little biased about that, but it's okay. She's married to Ryan, who is an awesome son-in-law, and he loves Jesus. So what else could I ask for? So that is today. Well, many years ago, Many, many, many years ago, 17 years ago, when Amy was first learning to drive in my little Maxima, um, which, by the way, I will stop right here and say, if you're going to teach your children how to drive, make sure you're in a vehicle where you have access to the brake and the, and the gas. Okay? <laughs> I didn't, and you'll see why this is a story. Uh, so she and I used to go driving, uh, to practice our driving a little bit in the neighborhood that surrounded our house here in Garden Grove. Uh, we did it to test her driving skills and her knowledge about the rules of the road. Uh, we used to go to a little four lane i'm sorry a little four way stop uh, intersection it 's one of those ones that only has one lane in each direction, right so it 's one lane on this side and one lane on that side. We did that to practice the approach to a stop sign and how to stop a car in time so that she could do that. No problem. everything worked just great. A few months later, she was, I think she still had her learner's permit, uh, and we were in the fast lane of a large multi lane busy highway going about 50 miles an hour. As we approached a four way stop, I noticed that she was not slowing down. We got closer and closer and closer, and she still uh, didn't stop. We were going really fast. I let her go a few more seconds, but she had not let up on the accelerator let alone even touch the brake. We were seconds from blowing through the crowded intersection at full speed when finally I just yelled, Amy, stop the car. She immediately hit the brakes, preventing us from running the stop sign. But then, nearly in tears, she cried out, Dad, why are you yelling at me? I muttered something clever about how many people stop at stop signs. And then she said something that I will never forget. Next slide, please. Yep, you missed it. Go back one. Oh, no, keep going. No, you're way on. Okay. She said, Dad, I thought the stop sign was only for the lane closest to the stop sign. I was dumbfounded with her answer until I realized that she had never driven on a multi-lane highway that had a four-way stop. The one we practiced on was just one lane on each side. A lane, a stop sign, that's it. So in her mind, perfect sense. You really can't fault her logic for missing the whole point of stop signs, since in her experience with them, it was only in the context of little single-lane streets. Naturally, in the absence of knowing the full truth about stop signs, Amy had created a false assumption. She had a false expectation. By the way, I'm happy to say she's a really good driver now. (laughs) So if she invites you to go anywhere and she wants to drive it, you'll, you'll be good with that. Today we're going to learn about how the Pharisees, who, due to a false expectation about the kingdom of God, completely missed a vital theological truth. So much so that Jesus had to take time out to ensure that his disciples got it let's read our text it's uh, Luke 17 20 through 37 and first if you did not bring a Bible with you today there should be a little black Bible uh, under the seat in front of you if you don't own a Bible we invite you to take this one with you it's uh, taken home with you it's our gift to you a village Bible church Bible is our middle name we want you to have a Bible So turn now, if you're using that Bible, to page 876 and follow along. In the ESV it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, he, Jesus, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or Look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus, I'm sorry, just as it was in the days of Noah On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we come before you now. And Lord, we pray that you will just open up your word to us. Lord, we, we desire to follow you. We want to know you in a greater and a deeper way. Father, make um, these words uh, speak truth to us deeply today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, slide number three, main idea. The kingdom of God actually has two phases, the now and the not yet. The now has started and is a time of grace, but we must be watchful for the not yet as it is the hope for those of us who are saved but a time of judgment for those who are without Christ. Now let's reread 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or more precisely, among you. Okay, first, what is the kingdom of God? Luke's gospel has 27 references to the kingdom of God, so it would be kind of important for us to know exactly what it is. So audience participation, give me your thoughts. What is the kingdom of God? Everything under his reign, okay? It's okay if you have more than one answer. Church body. The church body, okay. Others? Others? serving him. Okay, those are all elements. Um, Both pastors have covered earlier Kingdom of God references in Luke, such as God's kingdom is near. This one was in Luke 10 and verse 9 in previous sermons. But I wanted, it's such a big topic, I want to just kind of give us something to hang on to, a simple way to remember it. And here it is, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Let me say it again, God's people In God's place, under God's rule. And I found an interesting quote. He says, To state that the kingdom, I'm sorry, that God's kingdom is near to most first century Jews meant that God is about to intervene in human affairs, to deliver the righteous, judge the wicked, and bring in an era of peace, justice, and righteousness. But my question is, why did first century Jews think this way? What led them to that conclusion? What set up that kind of expectation for them? Okay, so what I've provided for you, I'm sure you can read all of those letters, is the kingdom of God uh, timeline. This is really basic. I'll just read through it for you quickly. So the kingdom of God has been talked about throughout the whole Old Testament. It starts in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve living in a willing obedience to God's rule. And by the way, they were in God's place, right? The Garden. Next is the Abrahamic Covenant. promise promise to Abraham's descendants, who were God's people, would possess the promised land, God's place, and live under his authority, God's rule. The monarchies of David and Solomon imperfectly manifested the essential elements of the kingdom of God. The pre-exile prophets, so that would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they told the people of a future great day when the perfect everlasting kingdom would come. Failure of Solomon's kingdom then led them into exile. The Old Testament ends on the promise and expectation of the coming kingdom. So throughout the whole Old Testament, Jews have been developing this expectation of a kingdom of God. One commentator I read said, of the importance of the kingdom of God, in fact, it is the kingdom of God that gives the Old Testament its continuity. Let's talk about the now phase. While it was important for the Pharisees to be interested in the kingdom of God, they completely and totally missed its deeper meaning, its entire point. The now phase of the kingdom had actually already started. The kingdom was standing right there in their midst in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This situation is dripping with irony. They were arrogantly and unknowingly asking Jesus, the kingdom's king, in fact, The King of Kings, when his kingdom would start, when it would come. And he's right there. Thus, verse 20 and 21 uh, are the Pharisees' stop sign moment. This is what I'm going to identify it as. And they missed it, they blew right through it. So, what exactly did they miss? They missed the kingdom of God was standing right in front of them. Jesus, the King of Kings, in his kingdom, is standing right in front of him. This whole situation, this whole scenario, should serve as a warning to all people. If the Pharisees would have just considered the evidence all around them that portrayed the presence of God's delivering power, they would not be wondering where to look. Jesus now turns his attention to the disciples to ensure they understand the not-yet phase of the kingdom of God. So again, verses 22 and 23, And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go and follow them. Jesus indicates that the expected day of the Son of Man coming in power is a day that they will long for, but they will not see. In other words, the powerful display of that day is still coming. So looking back in time, he tells them it's, you won't see it, but that's because Jesus knew he wouldn't return for a really, really long time. He still hasn't. The days of the authoritative manifestation of the Messiah are not yet here. Next, Jesus states that many false messiahs would arise and or sightings of Jesus, but don't fall for them. Again, many false messiahs would arrive or sightings of Jesus. Now, I, up here now is a slide. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, here's a slide that shows a recent prediction of the date of the rapture. And this person predicted that it was June 21st, 2018. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that maybe that guy was wrong. Because uh, we're still here. And yet this kind of thing happens. These predictions happen routinely And people fall for it. Churches get pulled away. My warning to us is don't fall for it. I will say something. Notice how this publication that I got this from has the exclusive on the story. It's kind of funny. So when Jesus returns to earth, they think it will be an exclusive deal that only they know about, uh, which is obviously wrong. In fact, a really long time ago when I was in a journalism class, I learned... That uh, way back when, anyone remember what newspapers are? Okay, well, about a hundred years ago, no, it wasn't that long ago for me, but a hundred years ago, um, the newspapers had a type font set aside for Jesus' return and it was called the Second Coming Font and it was really huge so that they could print the headlines that Jesus had returned. Now, I find that kind of curious. It shows where the culture was, how media has changed, certainly. But it also suggests that they had a false expectation that they would have time to print about it. Okay, Or maybe they thought they wouldn't be available to go, so they should tell other people about it. But nonetheless, moving on to verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So this next phase uh, is called the not yet phase. Jesus' second coming will have displays of power that cannot be overlooked, a lot like a lightning storm. Why did Jesus use the analogy of lightning to describe his second coming? Well, I think it's because uh, it will be obvious to everybody. Okay, I have a question. Raise your hand if you grew up in the Midwest of the United States. Okay, keep it up for a second. I want to see who my people are here. Okay. Or if you spent extended times where you saw a storm in the Midwest. Oh, okay. You guys cannot answer this next question. How many types of lightning do you think there are? Audience participation time. Take a guess. uh, Don cannot answer because he's seen my slides. In fact, Don should never be allowed to answer Okay, how many types? Take a guess. Front row. You, I mean, you guys sit up here because you're the smartest. Okay, so, what's that? Hundreds. Okay, that's a little too many. Would you believe? I counted, next slide, I counted at least 15. Okay, the Midwest has huge lightning storms. I know this from experience, strangely enough, even though I grew up in Southern California. Uh, my research shows uh, uh, at least 15 types of lightning. God's creative genius even finds its way into lightning. Is that cool? Um, There's cloud-to-ground lightning. There's ground-to-cloud lightning. There are anvil crawlers, right? So you've seen the, the clouds that look a little bit like an anvil, okay? Bolt from the blue. There's a whole bunch of them. But if you grew up or spent time in the Midwest, you would have seen these. But the type I'm interested in for this illustration is called sheet lightning because it lights up the whole sky like a sheet of light, And I know this because one time I happened to be traveling in Kansas. Uh, We were visiting, okay, I was with some friends and they were visiting a relative. And there was going to be a big family gathering, so we just took the opportunity to have a free place to stay and we stopped with them. Uh, This is long, long before I even met Debbie. So we're uh, traveling and it's me and two other guys and, and there's not enough room for all three of us and all the guests. So one of us sleeps has to sleep outside. So I volunteered and they said, don't worry, there's a, pickup truck with one of those camper shells. Not a camper, but the shell, right? with And you've seen it, the green tinting on the windows. Okay, so kind of old school. Anyhow, so I say, no problem. I have a sleeping bag anyway. And so I go out there and I'm in my sleeping bag. Well, they said, there's going to be a storm tonight and it should be kind of interesting for you. <laughs> so I said, oh, cool. Okay, and by the way, I am away from the house. I'm in the back of a metal pickup truck. Okay, And a storm came through, and it was the most spectacular lightning storm I've ever seen. The whole sky lit up, and there was nothing but constant thunder rolls, just one thunder sound after another, and the light was flashing all across the sky. And there was not a chance anyone in the whole region could have missed last night's thunderstorm. And so when we got together for breakfast, no one came out and said, oh, there was a storm last night? So my point is, the storm that Jesus is talking about, probably wasn't in Kansas, but the storm he's talking about is this kind of a storm, right? That it's so obvious, everyone in the whole area sees it. There's no exclusive, there's no secret arrival of Jesus. So just as everyone can see the lightning plainly, Jesus' second coming will be obvious to all. Verse 25, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Once again, Jesus reminds his disciples he must die before he can return a second time. It also is Jesus' way to say, wait for the next, I'm sorry, wait for the not yet age of the kingdom of God. Just as it was in the days of Noah, this is 26 through 31, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. So what do the calamities of Noah's and Lot's time have in common? Okay, I want to make sure we completely understand this. These verses are not saying that eating, drinking, marrying, etc. are evil things. Yes, those times were very evil. In fact, they're very strangely reminiscent of today, right? The, the whole time uh, with the people around Noah... The people in in Sodom, it's proverbial how evil they were. But Jesus isn't calling that out. He's saying they were so busy eating and drinking and marrying, they were just caught up with everyday life. They were too busy with everyday life to consider God or their eternal destiny. And think about that. The people that Jesus is talking about whose lives were destroyed were too busy to think about God or their eternal destiny. So I'm not sure if I agree with this comment from this gentleman, a theologian, R. Kent Hughes. Um, He's speaking about people in Noah's time. And he said in his book, uh, Luke, that you may know the truth, it was, uh, here's his quote. It was not their sin, great as it was, that damned them to destruction. It was their indifference. Now, I have some trouble with some of his thought here, but I will agree. Indifference is a sin as well. And uh, I suggest to you that indifference is probably the sin that we experience, that the United States experiences, that our culture experiences. Note, too, that Jesus is underscoring how total and how swift the judgment will be, so fast that people will not have time to gather their belongings before they flee. This is one of the reasons Jesus urges the disciples to remember Lot's wife. Now, I... I saw this verse, verse 32, and I'll read it to you. Remember Lot's wife. I made it a memory verse because it's it's easy to remember, uh, which is hard for me. But it's also one of the most poignant verses in the whole Scripture. Remember Lot's wife. Now, why does Jesus stop his whole discourse to mention Lot's wife right now? What's the purpose of him doing that? Why does Jesus mention Lot's wife here? In addition to the point just made about the swift nature of judgment, I believe Jesus is also giving a sober reminder to not be possessed by possessions. Lot's wife came, oh, here's a quote. Lot's wife came as close to deliverance without actually achieving it as was possible. She was brought right out of the doomed city and set on the way to safety. She looked back and lingered. Evidently, in longing for the delight she was leaving behind. In the process, she was caught up in the destruction that overtook Sodom and she perished in the city. That was um, a quote from another of the um, folks that I read talking about Genesis 19. So on this next slide we see, Did <laughs> did Lot's wife turn into a pillar of salt merely because she turned around? That's a real question to you. Okay, I think I heard no. I'll say no. Because otherwise, if so, we should start the no turning around denomination, uh, which is probably not going to happen at this church. So, or was it because she couldn't imagine her life without the things she was leaving behind in, in Sodom? Jesus follows up this saying by talking about in verse 33, verse 33, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So essentially, Jesus is saying, we need to put aside our dependence on our possessions so that we can put our full trust in him. Let me ask you, to whom is Jesus' commentary on Lot's wife directed? Was it to some random crowd of rabble-rousers? It was to his disciples. And I think he's directing it to us as well. As a warning, let's move on to verses 34 and 35. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So, next, Jesus warns his disciples that the rapture will separate seemingly similar people, even husband and wife, one to safety and one to destruction. Quote, Jesus then explained that his coming and the ensuing judgment will be subtly discriminate and eternal. In all outward respects, two people may appear the same as they share the same bed or work at the same mill. But one will be taken away to deliverance while the other is left to destruction. Close quote. So this is is very sobering. He's talking about the rapture and how, how it will work. Uh, verse 36, maybe in some of your Bibles, the Authorized Version includes it, but uh, it has inferior manuscript evidence, and most agree that it was just borrowed from Matthew 24:40. Regardless, it makes the same point that the verses before it, 34 and 35, make. So there's no issue here. The the point it's making is one person is taken to safety, the other is taken to destruction. <laughs> Finally, they close out, and in verse 37, And they say to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So evidently, Jesus' warning not to return to the city or to one's home when the judgment comes led the disciples to imagine that the judgment might be focused on a particular locale, just one place, like Jerusalem. So they asked him, Where, Lord? And the Lord replied with a strange idiom, which essentially meant judgment will fall on all humanity. Thus, where the spiritually dead people reside, where they are, there will be judgment. Finally, let me recap. Today's message has been about the two phases of the kingdom of God, the now and the not yet. The now has already started and we're waiting for the not yet to be ushered in or to be completed when Jesus arrives in his second coming. We also learn that the Pharisees completely missed the point that Jesus was making about the kingdom of God. That is, the kingdom of God was standing right in front of them in the person and work of Jesus Christ, yet because of their faulty kingdom expectations, they sadly could not accept Jesus as Messiah. Now, I'm going to ask you, was it just the Pharisees who missed this important point? Or have some of us missed it too? What are your kingdom expectations? What are your kingdom expectations? If you haven't placed your trust in Jesus as Savior, then you're heading for a disastrous stop sign moment with eternal consequences. What did my daughter learn from her stop sign moment? To immediately heed the warning that possibly saved her life. If you do not know Jesus, if you are uncertain about your salvation, I urge you to stop running and come talk with me after the service. Um, You can also speak to any of the elders, but please come and talk to us. We won't embarrass you. We don't make you raise your hand or anything like that. But please, by all means, come and see me. For those of us who know we are saved, how do we live in the not-yet period of the kingdom of God? Because that's where we are. How do we not get distracted by the busyness of living life while we wait for King Jesus to return? I think part of the solution is to focus on kingdom-sized goals on a regular basis. This can only happen if we set aside time to meditate on God's word and pray and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Also, I encourage you to reflect on the following questions this week. So what really matters when it all comes down to it? What is the consequence today of being one of God's people? For you, I'm asking you to think about this for yourself. How will I know I'm living in God's place? In other words, how do I know I'm in the place where God wants me? And then last, what does it take today to be under God's rule? Is your walk with the Lord closer today than when you first trusted Jesus? I think that's kind of the takeaway. Is your walk closer with Jesus today than when you first trusted him? If the answer is no, then ask yourself, why not? Why isn't it? What is keeping me from a closer walk with Jesus? And just deal with it. If your answer is yes, your walk is closer as you've grown in Christ, then please honestly share it with others and share it with us as encouragement for us to continue on during the not yet phase of of the kingdom of God. We don't know when, but we do know for sure that Jesus is coming back. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we really impressed by the scope of these two topics the kingdom of God and your your son's return to earth and we take them seriously Lord we, we understand that you desire that all people would be saved you want to see us in your kingdom You desire fellowship with us. You want to be in close relationship with us. And so, Father, I do ask if there's anyone here today who does not know you or is uncertain of his or her salvation, that they would seriously consider the claims of Jesus and see the work that he's done on their behalf. We pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them and convict us of sin. Lord, I pray, too, for every person in this room who knows you. I pray that our hearts would be turned towards you and that we would not become complacent. Father, I do see complacency as, as an epidemic, certainly in our culture. But even in the church, and Lord, we pray that it would not find its root here at our church. We pray it would not find its root in our hearts. We ask right now that the Holy Spirit would, in fact, convict us of anything that is keeping us from a closer walk with you. Lord, these are sober thoughts. These are serious thoughts. But we're so grateful for your son. We're so grateful for your love for us. We thank you now, and we just desire to see you in a new way today. In Jesus' name, amen.